Sometimes opportunities arise which push you outside your comfort zone. For Kelsey Rex, an out-of-the-blue invitation turned a next-year trip to Alaska into, we're leaving in two months. That accelerated timeline required a matrix-like download of expedition planning and put Kelsey in her sweet spot as a lover of meticulous spreadsheets. It also meant confronting her tendency towards, as she puts it, conservative progression plans. Not only was the trip unexpected, she would be going with someone she'd only climbed with once before. This would be an extended second blind date, as she describes it. So how did it go? You'll have to listen to find out. In this episode, we talk about planning for your first Alaska expedition, how good partnerships are both complementary and foster growth, and what makes the Northeast special when it comes to training for bigger ranges. Before we get to that, shout out to Garrett, thank you, appreciate it, our newest supporter on Patreon. And something else that's new, today's episode is sponsored by Blue Ice. Yeah! Personally, most of my ice crew rack is comprised of aero lights, so I'm excited for them to be a part of what we're doing. With that as the prelude, here's a quick message from their man upstairs in North America. Hi, this is Bill Belcourt at Blue Ice. In climbing, weight is the enemy of success. Here at Blue Ice, we make some of the lightest climbing equipment in the world to give you a fighting chance at succeeding in your objectives. The rest is up to you. Good luck out there and enjoy the podcast. All right, you heard him. Enjoy the episode. Before we get to sort of the bulk of today's conversation, what is it about Alaska that draws you as an ice climber? Being a climber that's pretty much mostly climbed in the Northeast and North Conway area, honestly, it looks sick. Like if you just look at pictures of Alaska, Um, And I've been inspired by local friends who have done a lot of climbing in Alaska. Um, I had a job last, maybe last summer or the summer before, just part-time doing carpentry with these, uh, this couple of guys, Nick Aiello and Justin Guarino, who were two out of three guys who did uh, first ascent on the north face of Mount Neocola, the Medusa face. And so just hanging out with them was really inspiring. And they just had a ton of stories that they were telling all the time about Alaska. And that kind of put the bug in my ear that it was some place where the skills that I would learn here in New England would transfer to pretty well. So I've always been intrigued by places that I don't know much about. And Alaska was kind of that for me. Um, I have seen pictures, but it's like really far away from New England, so it feels like an, uh, an adventure. I've never been that far northwest before. Pretty much California was like the farthest northwest I've been in, this, in, the, in the U.S., so. Your trajectory as an ice climber seems a bit like an adventure, and so I'm just curious, could you share just a little bit about your background and, and how you got into ice climbing to start? Yeah, so this is going to be my fifth season ice climbing. Um, and, and the whole progression has been really fast. Um, and I just loved it as, as soon as I tried it. When I first started ice climbing, it was because I was working in a gear shop, International Mountain Equipment here in North Conway. And I had access to the rental gear in the shop. So, and they were like, you should probably learn how to ice climb if you're going to be selling ice climbing gear. So I was working for the gear shop 
and I had a bunch of built-in partners. So I was able to use the rental gear and get out a ton. So I was kind of that first year going um, off of the Will Gad mentality of you should follow 150 pitches before you start leading. I was really cautious. I had heard stories of people falling. I had seen videos of people falling on ice and I knew that it was like not a super awesome thing to do. So I was pretty conservative straight off and was focused on getting the mileage. So that was my first year. And then my second year, I had some awesome rope gun partners, specifically my friend Kiff, was uh, who I climbed with a, a ton. And he just took me up some wild climbs that were probably above my pay grade at the time. But I think when you're put in those situations to uh, where, where, you know, it's hard for you and you're struggling, those are growth experiences and they help you to advance your climbing. So I got out a ton that second season too. And by the probably middle of that second season, I felt like I had probably 100 days on ice from those first two seasons, um, I started leading um, and was super easy stuff. But I, yeah, I had a schedule that also that optimized my time for ice climbing, which was really nice. I was working at the gear shop like two days a week, but I also had a serving job that mostly or pretty much every day started at 3.30. So I was able to climb all day, and then go into work at 3.30, which is like almost when it gets dark here in New England anyways. So um, <laughs> that was pretty cool. And then my second season, I had kind of a pivotal moment when I was with uh, my friends Kiff and Brady, and we wrapped into a climb called the Unicorn, and they just handed me the rack, and I let it. And it was my hardest climb so far, but that put the thought in my mind that like wow I can lead harder ice so I kind of started on this progression of like leading harder and harder things and eventually I took a, a fall ice climbing thankfully I had placed like a bunch of screws right before it and the screws caught me and I didn't fall that far but from that fall I like kind of took a step back from focusing on progression and shifted my focus for my third season to be on just making water ice four feel super chill. So can you talk about the fall? Because, you know, some people will say, like, I'll never fall in an ice screw. I don't trust it. Um, and some people have taken multiple falls. And so, yeah, I mean, like what happened and what was the experience like? And um, did the screws hold? They held. Yeah, <laughs> they um it was on a route called the Hobbit Couloir at Frankenstein. It was a day that it was like crowded. There were a lot of people out there. I had been thinking about this route for a long time just because it's one of the classics and um, started up it. Things were going great. And then the top out was kind was like um, there was no ice at the top. So I, my tools were just on rock, shaking around, and I didn't feel like I could reach far enough to get a stick in the snow. So, and I was pumped out. So I, I was at the top out and I had like sewed it up right beneath me. I had placed like three screws right in the same area right beneath me. And yeah, when I was pumped out, 
couldn't find any sticks, couldn't, and it was like slab that my tools were on. I eventually just peeled off. And yeah, the screws, the three screws that I had right beneath me held, but I took a little bit of a bit of a swing. And yeah, it shook me up. I was uh, not super proud to have done that, but it showed me where I was. And I was able to frame it as like, um, yeah, something that I could use as a marker and be like, okay, that's too much for me. I need to dial it back. Like, I need to focus on, and which is a very real thing in ice climbing, you know, it, you can't get too excited about your skills progressing, hop on hard things because the danger is real. Did you get back to leading right away or did you sort of just like cool off for a bit, re- recollect yourself? I had some, I had some mixed responses from friends. Some people were like, it happens. Um, like some very experienced people came forward and were like, don't beat yourself up. This kind of thing has happened and slips happen. And so I, yeah, I think I got, I think I got back to leading pretty much right away, but I just dialed it back a bunch and stuck with like threes and fours, uh, for a while until I felt like super solid on that. Um, and I think that really helped having the mileage and getting super comfortable on that kind of terrain. Knowing what you know now, how would you approach the top out differently? I would have probably tried to not get so pumped. I probably would have tried to have a little bit more fitness. And obviously, I probably wasted some time placing all of those screws. Like, if I had more comfort with that grade, I feel like I would have protected it less and been just more efficient in general on the pitch. So, yeah, I would have been less pumped at the top out, been able to reach farther. I also have these awesome tools right now, forecast equipment, shout out, <laughs> um, what, that are a little bit longer than traditional tools. They still fit the UI, UIAA, uh, fit in the box that are used is used to measure tools for ice climbing competitions. But for me, as someone who's 5'3", uh, or 5'2", 5'3", on a good day. With a negative ape index. With a negative three ape index. They kind of helped me to reach a tiny bit farther, um, use my partner's pick holes sometimes, uh, make less moves in total on, an, on a climb. And so I feel like that would have helped me at that point in time, but I just didn't have those tools. But it, uh, that experience shaped a lot of how you approached your third season, right? Yes, yes. So my third season, I kept chill led water ice for a bunch for plus um i think i had some intimidation around the water ice five grade just being a big thing in my head and feeling like i shouldn't and couldn't step it up to that level um until i had more confidence in general in myself so i found mentorship i got out a ton still and yeah pretty much like ice climbed probably four or five days a week. And then my fourth season, um, I broke into leading water ice five, which was pretty sweet. I guided a high volume of ice and was doing a little bit more traveling. So the fourth season was pretty, this past season was pretty 
transformative for me because I felt really confident on stuff that I had worked really hard to feel confident on and was able to like take it to that next level of leading even steeper ice. And it was pretty sweet to feel like I could do that. Um, and I think also getting experience on like on sighting ice in other places, like traveling to Quebec and climbing their ice there, traveling to Cody and climbing ice there was super helpful because, uh, I was just able to read ice in different places. I know mentorship is sort of this, it's not an amorphous word, but it is kind of thrown out there, uh, the value of mentorship and then, you know, the counterpoints, like the value of figuring things out for yourself. And but I guess for you, like, what did that look like for you in your progression? Mm -hmm. At first, the mentorship was from my friends who worked at the gear shop who just knew a lot more than me. And then eventually during that third season, I found a female mentor or a woman mentor, identifying mentor, uh, Micah Burhart, who made it a point to like get out with me a number of days per season, which was super helpful because visualization is huge in climbing. And if you have a partner who looks a little bit more like you, acts a little bit more like you, you can relate to on a deeper level of like being a woman then it's really cool to see them go send a hard pitch and tell you oh you need to do things this way or you should you should uh try to do this and then i think you'll improve so yeah that micah has been an awesome mentor to me here in the northeast because she also has experience in the guiding field so she's someone who knows what i'm doing for a living she knows, um, and she's climbed a bunch of places. Um, she's now the mother of twins, and she has a book. And she's just a wealth of knowledge in the ice climbing field. Um, so Mike is a badass, but are there are there a lot, uh, or are there other or, or many other female guides, or excuse me, women identifying guides in New Hampshire? There are a handful of other female guides or woman identifying guides in New Hampshire, namely Lori Watt, who's doing awesome work. However, she's on the other side of the White Mountains, so she's not specifically in the Mount Washington Valley. And then there's Ann Parmenter, who is a rock star. She is recently retired and has historically guided like part-time up here and mostly in the winter. So I feel like I've been this past rock season the only full-time woman identifying guide in and I say full-time but like it's full-time when it's busy season it's not always full-time um and you know I have certain months of the year off and so it's it's definitely not like full-time year round but um yeah during rock season and during ice season I'm guiding like five to seven days a week which is great shout out to Cathedral Mountain Guides because they give me work and uh, I think it's just an industry that hasn't totally be been tapped into here. And I think that there's a lot of room for growth. And there are a lot of women who are starting to get their single pitch instructor courses and work through the AMGA guide track. And I think that's really inspiring. Recently, the Flash Foxy Festival was here. And it's the second year that the Flash Foxy Festival has been in North Conway. And I just love that event so much because it makes me feel there. We 
Splash Foxy brings in guides from around the country who identify as women and gender gender queer climbing guides, and it just brings the community together, and it makes me feel a little bit less alone. Um, I've heard that out west there's a better ratio of women to men guiding, and here in the northeast our ratio is just like skewed or delayed a little bit, and it's hasn't quite caught up to where the ratios are out west. So I think there are some challenges, you know. I sometimes feel like I have to work two or three times as hard in order to prove myself in the field and be extra professional, be extra tech savvy, be extra strong. Because when a client shows up in the morning and they look at me and I'm like, hey, I'm Kelsey, I'm your guide for the day. And I always have that fear that they're going to look at me and be like, oh, you're our guide? That's interesting, huh? You're like this little girl. And in reality, um, you know, I'm going to provide them with this awesome experience and like blow their mind. And so it's, uh, it's just something that I have in my head that's probably on the minds of a lot of other women guides out there. And it's just something that we have to um, combat with mind games and mileage and time in the field. So those are my thoughts on why there just aren't more women in the guiding field out here in rural New Hampshire. But um, North Conway likes to say that it's got the highest quantity of guides per capita out of anywhere in the U.S. So I think that's a fun fact. But the guiding industry as a woman has its challenges because we have smaller frames and we're carrying heavy loads. Uh, But I think there are a lot of advantages to being a woman in the field because we're just compassionate and caring and not to say men don't have emotional intelligence, but we are able to like get a read on people sometimes a little, a little easier. Well, what's interesting to me is I'm from the the Boston area and when I do go out to Crags or to the climbing gym, I went to CRG Cambridge for years and years, and the ratio tends to be 50% women, 50% men, and they're crushers, women crushers. So what is your sense for why people aren't leveling up their skills in pursuit of becoming a guide? Yeah, I am by no means the strongest climber in this area. There are so many Sandy women in uh, the Northeast which is so cool and inspires me in a a crazy way. But uh, I think that guiding as a job has its challenges because a lot of times the guiding services, most guiding services don't have things like health insurance and a 401k plan. And there are a lot of things that you sacrifice to do a job that uh, that doesn't feel like work. Um, or for me, that's how it is. I, I, it doesn't really feel like work because I'm just taking people out rock climbing or ice climbing. And it's a it's a really fun thing to get to do. I'm incredibly lucky. But I think that sometimes those lady crushers, women crushers have jobs that fit their life, that allow them to do what they love and allow them to still like send hard at the gym, send hard on the weekends, send hard after work. And um, they don't like feel the need to to guide for their job. Um, and for me, climbing was this hugely transformative activity. 
and it changed my life in a in an awesome way and allowed me to think differently about my body and my inner strength and for me that's why I choose to guide and pursue this profession is because it was something that I really believe in in like a spiritual way that um, it can change people's lives and teach them things just beyond the movement you know that can teach them skills in resilience and communication and trust and it can take them to places that they haven't been before I think that there are also barriers to um, to women coming into the industry because it's a it's expensive and time consuming to get certified as a guide which is something through that I'm working through at the moment like going through the AMGA track uh and they're starting to have affinity being a woman showing up to AMGA courses and you're the only one in that course who looks and acts like you I mean I'm I'm incredibly privileged because I'm a white woman cisgendered straight I I don't I don't have it nearly as um as hard as someone who identifies with more minorities than I do and I I recognize that but even just as a as a white woman showing up to a course I am like for my SPI courses I think I was like I was the only one on my SPI exam and there were like eight guys and so that makes you think am I getting special treatment are they giving me an easier or a harder time because I'm the only woman um and sometimes that you know can get in your head (laughs) so uh yeah it's all just about like creating more spaces for more inclusive spaces for women to enter and progress in the field which they're they are doing there are courses like the um i was thankful to get a scholarship from the north face to the to a women's rock guide course last fall and that was awesome to just be in a space where all the other women on my course were in the same place as I was and were just equally as grateful to be in this space where it was just us, where we could talk about like, oh, who's having menstrual cramps that day? And who's like, you know, there were there were just things that we could all identify and bond with each other over being women in the industry. And I think that those spaces are so valuable. And I hope that the AMGA continues to offer more of those. They are starting to offer more higher level programming for women's specific guiding, but there's still courses like I would have loved if there could have been a women's ice instructor course, but I spoke with them about creating one and they said that would be really cool, but we just don't know if we could fill a course. They said if you if you bring those if you find those people and come to us with a group of, of women who want to take the ice instructor course, then we could probably figure it out. But they didn't think that they could fill a course for the, for the ice instructor course. So you've had your own journey to becoming a guide because you were working in resource management and humanitarian work before. So what, what, uh, what were you doing before and, and what was the what what sparked the transition into guiding? Yeah, so my college degree is in natural resource management. When I graduated from college, I went into the Peace Corps 
in Malawi and I served there for a year and a half and I was an environmental volunteer so I was doing environmental education and I ended up working a lot in the gender equity sector as well doing like sex ed and reproductive health education and that was really awesome but it was also a really heartbreaking experience for me and I ended up not completing the full term of my Peace Corps experience. Usually you go for two years. And I, um, in full honesty, I was medically evacuated for mental health reasons. So I came back to the States and Peace Corps was awesome. They treated me really well. They gave me counseling for um, like pretty intensive counseling for 45 days. And then I worked for the Red Cross for a short time period once I returned. And then I went into the marketing field. Um, but the years that followed, the, the year or two immediately following my Peace Corps experience was pretty rough for me. I was dealing with uh, mental health problems, a, a whole host of them. And um, like, uh, yeah, eating disorder issues, anorexia, bulimia. And those things really impacted my, my life, my work, my family, my friends. And um, I, at the time, I've always been a runner. And I was running a lot and almost as a, probably as a coping mechanism. Um, and I was not feeling myself well. And I was just like continuing to uh, shrink and spiral into like more self-hatred and so I because that's why people have those kinds of mental health issues is usually like a uh, to gain control over the emotions that they've lost control that they feel like they don't have any control over so the doctors told me that I had to stop running and I ended up going to a rock climbing gym called salt pump in southern Maine and I got a month membership I started going auto belays by myself and it just became this really therapeutic thing for me. I was just like throwing myself at the auto belays initially and I would go there every night after work and just work through stuff in my own mind while I was on the wall and it made me realize that I really loved it. I really loved the like low impact um, flowy kind of movement that that it allowed me to do and it also made me realize that I wanted to treat myself better and that flipped my world around from this really scary place that it was to a place where I was like okay I can't not eat anything during the day and be this sick and also go to the gym and send the auto belay climb that I want to do I need to feed myself and I need to be healthy so um, climbing made me want to be strong again and get better. So once I started climbing, I pretty much fell in love with it. Through Salt Pump, I found community. And that community, a lot of the, the community that goes over to climb at Salt Pump is from North Conway. So I made partners and connections and, who live in North Conway. And eventually that's what led me to move here. Just having those connections and meeting climbing partners who were here. I started coming over to North Conway pretty much every weekend and climbing here. And then I was like, man, 
maybe I can quit my job and move there. So I quit my job and uh, took up a job at the gear store and a serving job and completely changed my lifestyle from working at a marketing company to one that fit with getting more time in the mountains and climbing more. We have come full circle back to North Conway. And I'm going to do a a time jump, a big time jump, theme jump, topic jump. And so going back to the very beginning of our our chat, you, you had Alaska on your mind for future seasons. You were thinking about it as you were getting into ice climbing. And then things really accelerated this past year because uh, Allie Oaks, that's not her actual name, right? It's Allie.Oaks on Instagram, but um, I actually don't know her name. Yeah, that's her real name. Mm-hmm. Allie Pine is her way that she makes it her name Alpine. <laughs> um, but Allie, Allie Oaks is her like, yeah, full name or Allison Oaks. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, um, now I know. Um, so you had connected earlier in that season and then she reached out to you with an offer to join her in alaska so so do you mind just talking us through like what happened what was the proposal and and how are you feeling about all that yeah so the women's specific rock guide course that i took in el dorado canyon last or not this fall but the fall before connected me with this uh woman lael butler and Lael and I went on a girls climbing trip to Cody, Wyoming. And when we were in Cody, Wyoming, we got set up through mutual friends with Allie Oaks and Dane Stedman, who live in Cody. And they're just guides, crushers. Allie's a travel nurse, but has set some, some roots down in Cody. She bought a house there. And we got to stay there for, they let us stay there for five days while we were on our climbing trip, which was super hospitable of them. And Allie had the day off on our, on the first day of Lael and I's trip there. So me and Lael's trip, Kramer. Um, and so uh, she came out climbing with us and showed us around for that first day, which was awesome. We went to do the triptych pillars, in, which was like a pretty big day because uh, she hadn't been out there. And so we were just like on sighting as a group of three. And it was so fun. Um, and Lael and I had thought about going to Alaska in spring 2024, this coming spring. And we had been talking about roots like ham and eggs and shaken, not stirred. And I think we that came up in conversation in the car ride with Allie. And because she had already been to Alaska in spring of 2022 with Dane. But she was trying to go back this spring probably every spring for the foreseeable future. (laughs) Um, But she wanted to go on a a girl's trip. And so she wanted to have a trip where she was like taking off her training wheels from climbing with Dane and like have a strong female partner. So uh, I think she had another partner lined up and that may have like fell through. And so she reached out to me in early February of last year and asked if I would have any interest in going on a trip with her uh, that same season, which would be like a couple months from the time point that she asked asked me to go. And I was like, give me 24 hours. I need to think on it. <laughs> uh, need to see if it's financially viable. And I 
crunched some numbers, thought about it a little bit, and then pretty much immediately, like, yeah, less than 24 hours later, I contacted her and was like, absolutely, I would love to go on a trip with you. That would be sick. And then we started planning. If I know nothing else about you, it's that you love planning and preparation. So let's dive into that. Um, Because basically things got accelerated by over like a year. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, like how are you approaching this now that it was coming at you like fast? Yeah, so there was a lot of planning to do in those two or two and a half months that we had leading up to the trip. And I felt like a little bit overwhelmed by how much I felt like I needed to learn. This was going to be my first time going on an actual expedition rather than climbing trip. And my first time glacier traveling. And so I just felt like I had a lot to learn. So I um, did everything I could to research about uh, going on an Alaskan expedition. And it's crazy how much information I didn't find online about going on an Alaskan expedition. Um, a lot of the information that I found was going on about going on like a guided Denali trip. And that was kind of helpful, but it doesn't give you the full picture of what you need to bring as like a self-sufficient team. And so I crowdsourced info. I tapped into the community here. And in my research, I made a long list of questions and then would meet up with people for coffee like Nick Aiello and just drill him with questions and be like, okay, I have this question. What do you think about like this? And what are these things? The the one um, resource that I did find online was actually written by a couple of North Conway locals, Bayard Russell and Michael Weichert. And it's uh, called An Exhaustive Alaska Expedition Packing List. And you could probably link to that or something. But it provided a list and a spreadsheet, which really is my love language. And... Uh, I was able to combine that with a spreadsheet that I already had in order to make this like mega gear spreadsheet of what Allie and I needed. So we, over the course of those two months, had calls pretty much every week to sort out our itinerary, our travel plans, who was bringing what gear, what we needed to acquire separately and as a team, what routes we were gonna climb, what mountains we wanted to be on, how we were going to climb them, what did we wanna eat on route, and um, what did we wanna eat like at base camp on the glacier. So those were all things that we talked about in our planning phase while updating spreadsheets and crowdsourcing info. My main hesitation with going on the trip was the fact that I just like didn't have $10,000 to spend on gear and like everything kind of adds up like you you need multiple tents and you need a backup pair of tools and you need like a backup rope and there are just things that I just didn't have like I didn't have two whisper light stoves and four stove pumps and so I uh, was able to through telling people that oh hey I'm like spontaneously going on this Alaska Alaska expedition as a part of a woman identifying team. And uh, thankfully, the North Conway community has a ton of badass alpinists here. And I was able to like 
borrow gear and bits and pieces from, I don't know, a dozen people here in the community, which was incredibly helpful and really alleviated the financial stress of me going on this trip. So gathering all the gear, documenting what gear we still needed and who was bringing what was a part of my preparation. And then I also met up with local people in the guide community and went over crevasse rescue skills and glacier travel skills. Um, I printed off topos of the routes that we were planning on doing onto like waterproof paper just in case that didn't end up being super useful because we didn't end up doing any of the routes we we planned <laughs> uh, intended on doing. But uh, yeah, the intention was there. For the details, how much did this trip cost? And if you hadn't gotten the support that you did from North Conway, how much total do you think it would have cost? If I had had to buy all the gear myself, I'm guessing it would have been like $10,000 um, just because we borrowed multiple tents from the community here. I borrowed like a negative 25 degree sleeping bag from a friend. I borrowed down booties. I borrowed pickets. I borrowed um, a terrier. I borrowed uh, two stoves. Like there are just so many pieces of gear and that probably adds up pretty quickly. Um, maybe not $10,000, maybe like five or six or seven. But um, it ended up costing me probably about three thousand dollars with um with travel from like my flights from boston to anchorage were about 900 because they were last minute and then uh there's a shuttle that you have to take from anchorage to talkeetna and that's about 150 i believe and then our flights from the glacier or from talkeetna to the glacier we're about 700, I think. So just for me, my uh, travel costs were probably 1,600, um, 1,700. And then that's not including food expenses and then time in Talkeetna and then any other gear that I needed to buy that was like specifically for me. Um, and we ended up coming off of the glacier a little bit early. So then there was just added costs associated with that i didn't realize i mean i i knew gear was expensive but i didn't realize it was like that much of a percentage of a of an expedition yeah i'm i'm very thankful to now have the support of a couple different brands which is like very life-changing for me um working in a, a, the guiding industry and um you know not always the most lucrative career path um, brands like Sportiva and Blue Ice who are helping me with gear here and there. So that's really awesome. And moving forward, I'll have that support, but didn't have that for this past trip. And um, there were some things that I, I realized that you need to have uh, certain things that I borrowed were just like didn't fit. Like I had down booties that were very generously donated, donated to my cause. And they were like a many sizes too big and just like didn't keep my feet warm um and so there are lessons that I learned in borrowing gear that are things that I should just invest in for future Alaska expeditions I think people outside of New England oftentimes downplay the terrain the climbing the weather 
but we've actually had a ton of alpinists and mountaineers uh, from the New England area going out to the, the big ranges. So, so what is it about the training and the terrain locally that allows you to prepare for these bigger ob- objectives? Um, the mountains are small. Uh, our tallest mountain is like 6,000 feet. Um, and that's Mount Washington here in the Northeast. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's the tallest mountain in the Northeast, but, um, yeah, at least in New Hampshire, in our local area, Mount Washington is the tallest. And compared to out west, that is not tall. But the weather is marketed as the worst weather in the world. Um, the The terrain is pretty rugged. It's like really rocky. It's really wet oftentimes. It gets really cold in the winter. And things are just icy, slippery, not ideal. And I think that that variety of conditions variety of terrain ruggedness of terrain creates people or allows people to have have to have more tricks in the bag and get out on less than ideal days you know on the rainy days here people are still going out dry tooling and like uh (laughs) or climbing wet rock and i think that 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 helps you grow as an alpinist or as a as a climber by just um you know, not only going out on the really nice days, like I know that out in Colorado, sometimes they have like 300 days of sun per year, which is like awesome, but that's not going to train you for like super harsh conditions. And then like, yeah, our, our local alpinists who have done a ton of climbing in Alaska are Kevin Mahoney, who climbed the Slovak Direct, and Freddie Wilkinson, who did the, um, the Tooth Traverse, and Bayard Russell, who's done a lot of development out there. And, um, yeah, so there are a bunch of North Conway local hard men who have chosen this as their place to settle down um, and their training grounds for bigger mountain ranges. And I think that's pretty cool that it's just become this mountaineering community on the East Coast that has so much knowledge of bigger ranges. So you get to Alaska, you're going to Talkeetna. And your original plan seems to change. So, so where did you end up and um, what were the routes you ended up getting on? Yeah, our original, our original plan was to go to the Ruth, Ruth Gorge um, and climb either Ham and Eggs or Shake and Not Stirred. Um, or we were going to go over to the Peak 11300 area and try, I believe, like the Southwest Ridge. And so that was our A plan and our B plan. And we showed up to Talkeetan Air Taxi and uh, we learned that there were already a bunch of teams um, going for ham and eggs and shake and not stirred. And so that influenced our decision to um, not go there because a lot of these Alaskan ice climbing routes are just huge funnels where you don't want to be underneath someone Um on a on a on a couloir kind of climb. So we knew that we had friends who were going to be on the Toka Sitna Glacier, which is at the base of Mount Huntington. And specifically one of those friends was Allie's boyfriend Dane and his climbing partners, Grant and Zach. And so we ended up totally 180ing plans and scrapping our initial plans. And in the 30 minutes before takeoff, we decided that we would go to the Toka Sitna Glacier 
And so we were weighing our bags. We were packing things away. We were changing into our outdoor clothes. And at the same time, we were like scraping the internet for any beta we could find on Mount Huntington on the couple of routes that we thought we could go for. Mount Huntington is, for people who um, aren't familiar with it, it's just like this super steep pyramid of rock and ice. It's about eight miles south of Denali, southeast of Denali. And while it's not the tallest mountain in the in the area, its peak is at, at like 12,000 feet. It's notorious for there's no easy way to the summit. Um, the the like entry level routes on Mount Huntington are pretty much the routes that we were we were going to go for. And they still clock in at like water race four, four plus M4. And at 10,000 feet, that, that like feels pretty, feels pretty stout sometimes. So, um, yeah, we ended up pivoting plans, going to the Tokositna Glacier. And I'm super glad that we ended up going there. I think Ham and Eggs goes at WI4 M4 as well, right? Um, I think it's like a lot of snow climbing with like maybe a couple moves of water is four is what I understand. I'm not totally sure. Okay. Because the question is West Face Couloir and Colton Leach seem like quite a big kind of step up actually. And so I'm curious, I'm curious how you are feeling in that moment because you're pushing your, your maybe experience level and comfort level and now you're, you know, pivoting sort of last minute to something a little bit more objectively challenging. Totally. And I really appreciate that in Allie is that like, she always wants to go for like the harder thing and step step up to a challenge and um, doesn't want to do the easier thing. And um, I sometimes need that little push. Um, so yeah, those routes on Mount Huntington were more a little bit more difficult than than the routes we were going to try to do. So I was feeling excited and nervous and jittery, but I also had a lot of trust in the fact that she'd been there before and it was a little bit of extra insurance that we knew people who were on that glacier because they could like watch us while we were en route or just just knowing that that we knew people who were going to be around was um was pretty nice so you did the two routes how did they go the first route that was on our mind was the west phase couloir which is this super classic four thousand foot route um water ice four plus m4 and it has like this 2000 foot approach and then 20 more pitches after that um and so we uh spent a couple days um just making base camp waiting out some bad weather and then when we got a nice weather window we decided to go for it and it was it was a learning experience it was like super gorgeous and um and really fun but definitely got a little bit suffery for us. Um, we had only climbed one day together, so it was a little bit of like a second blind date. Um, <laughs> and uh, we were just like still working out the kinks of our partnership. So all that said, I think we like worked pretty well together. Um, we had some things happen that uh, changed the course of the day. Like, Early in the morning, we our boiling pot of like four liters of water spilled over, and we had to like reboil that pot of water, which took another hour out of our morning. 
and caused us to delay the start. Um, we got like, I don't know, maybe 800 feet up the, up the approach and realized that we didn't have Allie's set of glacier glasses. So had to turn around and then restarted up the route. And that cost us some time. And then we were second in line out of like three parties on the route. There was Matt Cornell, who's a phenomenal athlete. And he was soloing a route, um, which he did camp to camp in like 10 hours and 50 minutes or something bonkers, which is wild um, to just like be in the presence of that and be like, what the heck are you doing? But he was in front of us. He, no one had been up this route yet. So he was like setting the track and we were thankful to like just be following his route finding a little bit. And there was a party that was behind us from Montana and we felt really guilty for having our start delayed because that meant that um, we were closer to them than we had wanted to be. Um, we were just like more behind on our time plan. So we were doing everything we could to just hustle, hustle, hustle to get like as far up the route as we could. So we were sacrificing things like self-care and that ultimately is like why we turned around at 11,000 feet at the intersection of the West Face Couloir with the Harvard route. Um, and yeah, we were just like feeling pretty depleted, didn't feel like we had enough sunlight left to do the remaining pitches to the summit. So we th thought that it was like in our best interest to just turn around. So we began like the long descent and that was a really good learning experience just in Big Mountain self-care big day self-care um slow is smooth and smooth is fast and we could have like just taken a chill pill sometimes had a break and drank some water and I could have been better about like belaying and eating um I think that's the thing with like two people like you're always in go mode because you're either belaying or you're climbing so um yeah that route while we didn't sum it I felt like it was a success because we came back safely. And then we had a couple of days of like repacking our bags and figuring out what we were going to do next. And we chose a route called the Colton Leach, which also begins with another different ice couloir that's um, almost as steep as West Face Couloir. But in my mind, it was just way more, a little bit more ephemeral. It was so gorgeous to be back in there. And, um, yeah, Colton Leach is more obscure, I think less traffic, but about equal in diff difficulty, um, just because it has some M4, um, at the top. And so we changed a couple of things about our strategy for this second route. We decided that we were going to bivy on the route. So we weren't going to try and do it in a push. Like we were trying to do the West face couloir. We packed more stuff, but because we had just had the practice of doing a route, our packs like weren't that much heavier. We just like trimmed the stuff we didn't need from the first route and packed tents or packed a tent and some sleeping bags and just altered our strategy a little bit. We started earlier too, and our self-care was way better on the Colton Leach. Our efficiency was way better. And we just like charged up this couloir. Um, 
It was a lot colder also than the day that we were on the West Face Couloir. Um, but we were psychologically more comfortable on Colton Leach because we had just like, I, I don't know, we, I, I felt like I was just like getting my groove a little bit because we it, was, it wasn't my like big first route in Alaska. It was like, you know, my second. <laughs> um, so I had more confidence. I was leading more stuff. And we got to the top of the Colton Leach, like, main ice couloir, and we had seen this cornice from binoculars, but we didn't really know how big it would be in real life. And um, when we were standing under it, we realized that it was, like, kind of, like, bus-sized. And we thought, like, when we were looking at it in the, in the binoculars, that it might be doable to get around somehow and in person Allie valiantly tried to mix climb around the cornice on some really like sugary snow and slabby climbing and um it just like wasn't it was taking us a little bit of time to problem solve like how do we get around this obstacle and we didn't feel like there was really a way to like tunnel through it super safely that's definitely a gap in my knowledge coming from the east coast is i'm not familiar with climbing through cornices and i don't think ali is either from climbing in cody wyoming so eventually we were taking so much time trying to get around this thing that the weather started warming up things started crashing down around us and a huge snow mushroom like that was right next to us just collapsed and we could see dane and Zach and Grant down below us on the glacier and they were just pacing back and forth <laughs> and um and we kind of like were feeling that same way internally once things once things started to warm up a little bit just that it was like we weren't in a great place being right stuck under this cornice as things were starting to warm up um so we decided to bail went back to camp um after you know doing the descent and uh, I don't know. I felt pretty good about that one because it was just like a lot more efficient and I felt more comfortable um, on that route. But a little bit of a heartbreak to not make it to the summit on either route. But I feel like the fact that we challenged ourselves and went for, you know, didn't go back to the West Face Couloir when the weather was nice. We went and cho chose a different route um, so that it would just provide us with a different experience. I feel like all of those things are just increased my exposure to, to different terrain and different obstacles and hopefully will be beneficial moving forward. So, I mean, it sounds like you learned and experienced a, a ton on this trip. What are the takeaways? Like, what did you learn from, from that uh, experience? Yeah, I learned so much in the planning phase, but then I learned so much in like the trip itself and the debrief with Allie. Um, we made lists when we got back from the trip um, of what we, and I think that these are going to be really helpful moving forward, of what we wish we brought, what we brought that we didn't use, what food did we eat that we, um, that we wish we hadn't brought or that just like froze immediately. Um, I learned that stoves are going to break and things are going to break just because it's really cold and 
stuff starts to malfunction when it's really, really cold. So um, be prepared for your Whisperer light stoves to sometimes malfunction. And um, some gear really needs to fit, like down booties. I learned that, said that already. Um, have an A plan and a B plan, but also have like a C and a D plan as well. And I learned how to stay warm on really cold nights. Uh, you have a warm sleeping bag, which if you don't have a warm sleeping bag, you can take a, a couple of sleeping bags and put them inside of each other. So like if you only have like a zero degree and 15 degree sleeping bag, you can put the, the 15 degree inside of the zero degree and then you have just like more down surrounding you. Um, I was thankful to have a 25 degree sleeping bag. Um, which I, I shoved all of my electronics in the in the bottom of the bag at night so that they wouldn't so that my body heat would kind of like keep the batteries a little bit warm. Um, because we would wake up every morning to frost on the inside of our tents just from the cold. So um and warm Nalgenes by taking boiling snow into water, filling the Nalgenes up with boiling water, and then you, have, you can, like, put one of them down by your feet to keep your feet warm, and then one of them, like, in between your legs. And that helps to keep your core pretty warm during the night. What did you learn about your partnership with Allie and about, about yourself? And, um, yeah, what did, you, what did you take away from, from going in pseudo-blind? Um, I learned that we're both, like, pretty spunky, bubbly, happy-go-lucky people. And that our strengths complement each other pretty well. Allie is like super spontaneous and just like totally the most kind person you'll ever meet and like totally leads with her heart and is always hungry for a challenge. I think that sometimes I'm a little bit more like self-deprecating New Englander and um, I am not as spontaneous. I really like to plan. And I think that those two... I think that we, and I think I'm a little bit more conservative sometimes, like on the, on the, like, um, like objectives that I'm going to set for myself. So I think that she kind of pulls me out of that a little bit. And I think that I am able to like make up for it in like my research and planning aspects. Um, and like guiding mileage also helps me, um, to be a good partner to Allie and, in terms of strength, she's just, like, incredibly strong. She's a phenomenal athlete. And, like, yeah, she's she's on the list to look out for of people who are just, like, coming up in the field. So she's the rope gun for sure. And I'm really glad that she reached out to me because it was, like, a life-changing experience for me to go to Alaska with her and to learn from her and to see her, like, excel in that field and for her to see me like kind of come into my own in the terrain and like if I hadn't had this trip happen this past year then I would have not known that I like love Alaska so much and that it's somewhere that I want to go back to for a bunch of years every spring. How has this trip changed your perspective on climbing and also guiding if at all? This trip made me realize that there is so much val value in the volume of guiding that I do uh, just because it allowed me to be, I feel like I was, uh, I teach people how to pack their bags for a big day. I feel like our, our 
transitions were like pretty smooth. Um, and I think that the technical, like the repetition of, of guiding a lot helped it to be, me to not really have to focus so much on, um, like what's this anchor going to look like? It just helped me to not have to focus on certain technical things and be able to just like climb in that environment. And, uh, definitely makes me want to get stronger. And that's been a, something that I've been trying to do over the past year, at least specifically in these past couple months is like start training for ice season, which I've never, I've never like actually trained and lifted weights before. So this is a whole new thing. I've always just gotten to where I am through play and mileage and work. And so to actually be training for something feels really rewarding and like I'm hopefully building some strength that'll pay off. So what are you focusing on for your training? I'm focusing on building power. I think I have okay endurance, at least endurance with my legs and cardiovascularly. So I'm I'm working on trying to get my upper. I currently I'm uh, down and out with a broken kneecap, so I'm focusing on building my upper body power and strength. Um, and I have to compensate now because I have this broken leg. <laughs> I'm just like gonna campus up all the ice that I can. So I'm doing weighted hangs, weighted Tabata hangs. I'm doing some like weighted pull ups. I'm doing. Um, walk-off training and just lifting weights getting trying to get my wrists really strong and my forearms really strong and antagonist muscles in my forearms uh all beefed up for a season of guiding and alaska we are hoping to do the harvard route this year uh if things go to plan and so we just want some redemption. We want to tag the summit. Not that that's what the it's about. It's about the journey. But I think we realize that we have the capability. And so um, that's what our sites are set on. And at least my like training sites are set on is training like probably specifically this winter to make it up that in good fashion. And maybe some other routes in the Alaska range as well. I feel I just loved it up there so much. I didn't want to leave the glacier. I felt like uh, I felt really comfortable. So I would like to stay there for a tiny bit longer this year um, and maybe climb some other places other than Mount Huntington after Allie and I try the Harvard route. So we, we talked about how New England has a lot of opportunities to train for these bigger ranges, and you've proven that out in your own experience. For a route like the the Harvard route, what would a day look like? Like, are you planning to emulate something similar length and difficulty in New England? Or, yeah, I guess, like, how does getting out um, in the terrain look from a training perspective? Do you, do you need to simulate that, or do you already kind of know from last year? Um, I feel like I, I know a little bit from last year. It's going to be some, like, snow climbing, some, like, the Harvard will have a little bit, like, more lower angle ice and then it'll be a couple of pitches of like harder mixed climbing and back into some like lower angle ice terrain um and i think that we'll probably bivy on the route so my training for this season is going to include like some suffery winter camping 
and just getting super comfortable with my overnight gear and psychologically comfortable with just like sleeping out in the cold in the elements and you know when you're bivying on a route you probably don't have a negative 25 degree sleeping bag so like just like getting okay with sleeping in the cold and with less and around here pretty much the only things that we can do to simulate like big days are big vert link ups specifically probably the presidential range that uh allow you to just go up and down and up and down and traverse mountains and uh that's what i'll do for training um like endurance big day leg muscles walking with a heavy pack but i feel like i get a lot of that fitness by leading mount washington trips i'd guide people up mount washington and those are like i'm not moving fast um most of the time it's um which is good, like time on feet with a heavy pack and long days. So I think that training pays off. Man, you get paid to train. I need to become a guide. (laughs) I know, right? That's why it doesn't feel like work. You mentioned in giving a presentation about your trip, feeling imposter syndrome. Totally, yeah. I, um, I feel like this is something that I've struggled with in my own mind, um, both like just during the trip and in the guiding sphere as well um, as a woman um, and as someone who doesn't have, I haven't been climbing forever. I've been climbing for rock for like six years and I've been climbing ice for four so far and this is going to be my fifth season. So um I feel like the imposter syndrome feel, comes from feeling like I don't have as much experience um, as some other people, but I think that I totally, ha- that's just my own brain and I have mileage to make up for that. Like from living here, have just been able to go out like in the mornings and at nights and squeeze in climbing to every single day, which is pretty cool. And um, specific to the glacier, I guess, like showing up for me on the Tokusinic Glacier at the base of Huntington, which is like this notoriously like hard mountain to climb. All the people on our glacier were just elite athletes. And I felt like I was the girl who showed up with all the borrowed gear, which I was, um, <laughs> and like a total noob. And then specific to the presentation that I gave at IME, I had only seen presentations before from people who had... Uh, done some cool sh- stuff and made it to the summit i kind of felt like oh i feel inferior because we didn't make it to this to the summit during our attempts why should i be giving a slideshow but i realized that in stepping up um that there's a lot of things to be that i can like inspire other people to go on their own rad trips and that i like i can shift the the focus from being like a I conquered this mountain I summited um to we failed and this is all the stuff stuff we learned um and is it really a failure if you like learned so much in the journey and so that was pretty cool for me to learn um it's just like I felt like I I I had heard some comments from friends being like oh why is she giving a summit if she didn't summon anything but uh for me, it was just like this huge experience. And a lot of people in the community when I came back had said, you should give a slideshow. 
And I eventually got sick of them saying, you should give a slideshow um, and <laughs> um, caved and put a lot of preparation into it. And um, it was a really good thing for me to do. What's what's next for you? Um, I am coming off this injury. I have the ice instructor course this winter in year A that I'm super psyched for. And then I'll just be guiding a ton um, over the course of December, January, February. And then in February, I'm teaching at the Mount Washington Valley Ice Festival and the Michigan Ice Festival. And in April, I'll go back to Alaska with Allie. Um, so I have more guiding on the horizon, um, more chasing the big mountain goals that I have. And I'm super psyched because as of a couple months ago, I have a couple of brands in the climbing industry that are uh, supporting me and cheering me on in those pursuits as a woman in the industry and a woman um, trying to go do big mountain stuff. So specifically, those are Sporti La Sportiva um, and Blue Ice, who have um, been really supportive and you know they're helping my stoke and my goals progress and um it just feels like they're they've rec they recognize all the time and effort i've been putting in over the past past couple years last question if you were to give your younger self a piece of beta and this can be for life or for climbing what would that be Ooh, very good question i would say follow your heart Start saving earlier, Kelsey, than you. <laughs> um, and be kind. Try hard, and um, treat people well. Treat keep keep the people around you well, and um, and that'll like come come back around if you keep paying it forward. I know I'm just speaking in cliches, but um, like relationships and friendships are everything, and uh, yeah, just follow people who make you feel good. Well, thank you very much, Kelsey, for chatting today. Really enjoyed the conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate you um, being mindful to have women on the podcast and more representation. Love to see that. Um, and I think you're doing really cool stuff. I'm excited to listen to more episodes. And of course, thanks to our supporters on Patreon for helping us make this podcast a reality. If you dig what we're doing, consider joining Patreon as well. Membership comes with perks such as a supporter-only t-shirt, which is super fly, Q's and A's, or really normal people would say a Q&A, Q&A's with special guests, a look behind the scenes, and much, much more. <laughs>